Um, there's, a, there's a couple of cool things in, in chapter 35 that you just kind of breeze over um, if you didn't really you know, take your time to just like, chew your food. And you know, the, the first time I read through the Bible, I, I did it in one year. And um, you know, if you've ever read a book before, you would say, like, like a year? That's, that's, that's kind of slow, right? Like, you know, I can usually finish a book in like one to, to two months tops. Macy makes fun of me because I take like, I told her I took like three months to read, you know, a single 200 page book. And she's, she's like, oh, I can do it in a week. But that's not the thing with the, with the Bible. Um, you know, I, I read it completely from cover to cover in 12 months. And I'll tell you what, I'll probably never do that again for the rest of my life. And I will tell you why. So here's the problem. If you're trying to study it, at least for me, that's too fast. That's crazy, right? A whole year, one book. That's too fast. Now, of course, I can't speak for everybody here because I, I know some of you guys you know, have photographic memories and you like flip through 10 chapters and then study it while you're laying in bed later. Um, but, and you know, if it's, if it's your first time reading the Bible, then yeah, you should, you, know, you should read through it and kind of get the story so you can figure out what's going on before you start studying. Because if you just jump in someplace randomly, you're like, oh, okay. I don't really know what I'm doing here. Um, I don't know why this section is here. You know, it's, it's also, it's a story, and it's how we should live our life. Uh, but you need to combine those two things. So yeah, if it's your first time reading through, then you can read it like a story, figure out what's going on, and then you start <coughs> studying. Um, but, you know, for me, I like to read about two to three chapters a day. And if I'm studying, I usually take, like, maybe 20 to 30 minutes per chapter, and, you know, sometimes if I start trying to read too fast, like, uh, you know, just trying to get, them, get it done, you know, get, get it over with, um, my mind will start wandering while I'm reading. Have you ever done that before? You know, yeah. your eyes keep moving and uh, your brain starts thinking about what you're going to have for lunch or something like that. And I'll, I'll get to the end of the chapter and I'll realize that I did not get anything out of that. It was just blank. So I, I started forcing myself to restart the entire chapter and go through it again, and go through it again and again until I actually understand what's going on. And that's why sometimes it used to take me like 45 minutes to get through one chapter, um, just reading it, because I w- I'm terrible about that. I'm very sidetracked. Um, yeah. But here's the cool thing. If you're studying the Bible, you don't have to impress anybody, okay? You don't have to be that guy that studies like eight hours a day, because that's, that's just unrealistic. It's you know, that's, that's not, um, yeah, it's not realistic. Consistency is more, it's more important than, the, than quantity, right? I'd rather, I'd rather somebody study the Bible for 10 minutes every day than, you know, study like crazy, but only every once in a while. Because once you build down that consistency, the quantity will follow, and you build good, healthy habits, and that will become, it will become second nature to read the Bible instead of just, you know, like, oh, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, and then fall off the rail again. So um, if you're one of those people that says, like, oh, you know, I, don't, I just don't have any time to read the Bible, I'm, I'm way too busy, you know, um, then I'd, I'd quote Mr. Gabe by saying, uh, turn on your phone and go to the settings menu, then check the place that tells you how many hours you've spent on your phone, and that number will tell you how much free time you have in a day. So that's, that's a little... Uh, a little simple trick for you guys. 
But anyway, we're, um, we're starting off in Genesis chapter 35, okay? And uh, I'm going to try to take it verse by verse here. And I know we're going to be going at a slow pace today, but I really want to focus on some of this stuff. So Genesis 35, it says this. Then God said to Jacob, get up, go up to Bethel and stay there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to everyone who was with him, get rid of the foreign gods that are among you. Cleanse yourselves and change your clothes. Now let's get up and go up to Bethel so that I can make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way that I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods in their hand and the rings in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak tree near Shechem. Okay, so I'm going to pause there for a second. Uh, There's another place in the Bible where all of the people collected their their earrings, their gold, and their idols, and they gave them to somebody. You remember what that was? It was with um, Aaron in the golden calf is what I was talking about. It says they collected their earrings. You know, he, he told them, okay, give me all your, your jewelry, all of your gold, and I'll make them into a golden calf, this little idol. And um, yes, uh, they also collected the gold from the uh, Egyptians, and they created good things out of that. You know, they overlaid the ark, and they made all that stuff. But in, in the instance with Aaron, you know, he told the community, gather all the gold, and we're going to make um, an image of God, which, you know, that's... That's against what God had told them to do. But you've got to remember, the people at that time, they just come out of Egypt, and they craved this idea of an image of their God to worship, right? Uh, because that's exactly, that was their culture. That's what they knew for the past 400 years. So we see the exact opposite of that happening here, though, in this chapter. As Jacob finally takes a stand against the foreign gods that had accumulated in his household. You remember, um, was it, I believe, Rachel who took the, uh, the household idol from her father. And that's the kind of stuff that, you know, we don't even realize makes it in. There's probably other instances that weren't mentioned, but these are all the things that they're talking about here when they get rid of this. So I'm actually not gonna, I'm not gonna comment a whole lot on this passage right here. These first four verses, um, they're extremely important. And I plan to come back to this at the end of the teaching, okay? Uh, it's very important. I want everybody to have that fresh on their mind as they leave today. So we're going to go ahead and continue on, and then we'll come back to that later. All right. Starting off on verse 5. Then they journeyed, and the terror of God was on the cities that were around them. So they did not pursue Jacob's sons. Then Jacob arrived at Luz in the land of Canaan, that is Bethel. He and all the people who were with him. He built an altar there and called the place El Bethel because God had revealed himself to him there when he fled from the presence of his brother. God appeared to Jacob again after he returned from Padan Aram and he blessed him. God said to him, your name was Jacob. No longer will your name be Jacob for your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. All right. So if you were reading along with me, you probably noticed that I made a mistake, right? Yeah, I skipped a verse. So everyone go ahead and take a look at verse 8, okay? If you have a Bible. Which says this. 
Then Rebekah's nurse, Deborah, died and was buried below Beth-el, under the oak. So it was named Oak of Weeping. So why is that verse placed in the, right in the middle of all we just read? You know, the, the story is it's flowing really well here. And then we get this weird verse. It's like, you know, when you're, when you're drinking a, a smoothie, and it's smooth, you know, like it should be, like a smoothie, and then you get a big chunk of frozen banana, you know? And you have to chew it up. It's like, you gag on it. It's like you stop there for a second. It's the same with this verse, though. Like, it's describing how this is the land that Jacob went to when he was sent to Laban, the land which he named Beit El, or House of God. And when he first went there, God spoke to him in the form of a dream, right? Well, fast forward to chapter 35, and we see Jacob coming to the same spot and renaming the land El Bethel, or God of Bethel. And then Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, dies. And then God appears to Jacob again and speaks to him just like he did the first time in Bethel. So, like, you know, that's, that's weird. Like, why is that there? Um, well, as I pointed out in my last teaching, if you remember Genesis chapter six, uh, 26, there are no mistakes in the Torah. Uh, you know, every single verse and every letter has a reason and a whole hour and a half long teaching to extract from. I'm going to be honest, though. I don't know why this verse is here. And if your Bible has a commentary about it, it probably says something like this. The rabbis don't know why this verse is here. <laughs> So, now, of course, you know, there's several people that have made educated guesses, and some of them are a bit of a stretch, but I'm going to do my best to introduce one concept that someone here might find interesting, okay? So, I'm not saying it's the perfect explanation, because it's not, but it's something I realized in my study, and I figured I'd share it today. So, let's talk about this verse. So, who is Deborah in this story? Yeah, she was Rebecca's nurse. The word nurse here is the Hebrew word menechet. Okay? To make it easier to understand, this word was used again after this instance in Exodus chapter 2, verses 5 through 9, which reads this. Then the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe while her maidens walked along by the riverside. When she saw the basket among the reeds, she sent her handmaiden to fetch it. When she opened it, she saw the child, a baby boy, crying. She had compassion on him and said, This is one of the Hebrew children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Should I go and call a menechet, a nurse, from the Hebrews to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter told her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse him for me, and I will pay you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Okay. So now you have to wonder, you know, why was this woman Rebecca's nurse? Well, most likely, she was the nurse that went with her when she left her home to marry Isaac. Um, if you remember, the story is in Genesis uh, chapter 24. And um, it says that there was a nurse that left with her. And, you know, since this is such a close relationship... It would almost be like Deborah was Rebecca's mother. Uh, so, you know, she wasn't still nursing her at 150 years old. Um, she was just a significant woman in Rebecca's life that nursed her when she was a baby. And it was like her mother, so she probably came along with them on the journey. So now that we know the role of a, men- of a menechet, which, you know, is a, um, 
a wet nurse, someone who provides sustenance for a baby. Let's take a, a look at this particular menechet, which is Deborah. The word Deborah, or Devorah, in Hebrew, ah, it's spelled Dalit Beit Bab Resh Hey. Let me see if I can uh, remember how these letters are formed. Dalit Beit. <laughs> I shouldn't have done this. All right. There you go. Yes, Devorah. All right. So, um, this word, Devorah, it means, believe it or not, bee. Like, you know, the little black and yellow insects that pollinate things. Yeah. So, you know, if, you're, if, your, name means, or if your name is Deborah, then uh, you can tell people that it means bee. That's a cool little fun fact. But what are bees known for besides... Besides stinging people. Pollinate. They pollinate. And honey. And honey. All right. So we have this woman, Deborah, which means bee, who is a wet nurse, someone responsible for providing sustenance to a baby in the form of milk. So here's the cool part. It just happens that right before God reinstates Jacob's name as Israel, he mentions this verse of Deborah who represents two things with her job and her name, milk and honey. If you guys have ever read the first five books of the Bible, you know that for some reason, God loves to refer to the land of Israel as the land flowing with milk and honey. And that's always the end goal, you know, get to the land flowing with milk and honey. So the reason we have this right here, I'm assuming, is because Jacob has reached his end goal. This is kind of the end of Jacob's story as, you know, he's getting older and he's done with his life of adventure and rule bending. So he's cast away all his idols and it says in verse two, then it says now, or, you know, and now he lives the rest of his life following God's will. So these few verses could symbolize that Jacob leaves his old ways behind and has fully earned the name Israel, which is a rich and blessed land, a land flowing with milk and honey. But that's just, that's just a theory, though, okay? So don't think I have it all figured out. Uh, do some research of your own, see what you can come up with, because there's plenty of people that have plenty of different ideas out there. But uh, moving along, I do want to talk about Jacob's name and how it was changed to Israel, okay? So we know that Jacob's grandfather, Abraham, also had a name change, right? He was born with the name Abram, and God later changed it to Abraham, he added one letter to Abram's name, the Hey, which turned it from Avram to Avraham. Okay? The name Avram means exalted father, and Abraham means father of multitudes. It's kind of interesting, though, for Abraham, because at the time that he changed his name, and before that, he didn't have any kids. And, you know, that would be a very... Um, very strange thing, especially to go his entire life being called exalted father and not have any kids. But on the other side, look at Jacob, whose name in Hebrew is Yaakov. Yaakov means supplanter or someone who, who takes someone else's place, usually by wrongful means. Okay? And they named him this because if you remember, God told Rebekah 
that the older brother would serve the younger. And that was an unusual concept since there was a heavy importance placed on the firstborn son. But anyway, later in his life, God renames him to Yisrael, which means wrestles with God or God prevails. So God took his name Yaakov and took away every letter except for the first one, the Yud in Yaakov, and replaced every other letter to make Yisrael. And this tells us a lot about the personalities of these two men, right? For, for starters, when you look at Abram and Jacob, their lives were complete opposites. Abram, we don't see, we don't see him suffering a whole lot. But Jacob, it seems all he did was suffer, right? Abram had the hardest time having children. Jacob, you know, he'd step within 10 feet of one of his wives and they'd get pregnant. I mean, you know, he had 12 sons and we don't even know how many daughters. We're, you know, we're told about one of them, but we don't know. Abram was very hospitable and family-oriented, but Jacob spent half of his life either running away from or deceiving his family. Also, it seems like once God reached out to Abraham, all he did was add to him, like he added the, the hay to his name, you know, to make it Abraham. He just, he blessed him and he, prom- he made him promises and he just increased absolutely everything he had. Jacob, on the other hand, we don't see just addition, but also transformation. You know, once God reached out to him, he literally broke him down. He wrestled with Jacob and he broke the socket of his hip and it gave him a limp for the rest of his life. And he broke that little bit of Jacob that was wanting to deceive, you know, the thing that wanted to grasp and take. But he was always, you know, breaking Jacob down and replacing with something better. Just like he broke down his name and replaced all the letters he removed with something better. Yaakov to Yisrael. So in different times of your life, God can, can treat you like Abraham, you know, or he can treat you like Jacob. If he treats you like Abraham and is just blessing you abundantly, don't get comfortable, okay? Don't start to think for one second that you earned your current position or you did it without needing God, okay? On the flip side, if God is treating you like Jacob and your life is falling apart and you're being broken down, don't go into the depths of despair. You know, God doesn't tear people apart just for the fun of it. There's always a reason. And the reason may not be super, you know, fun and happy, but guess what? That's life. We aren't created so that we can have a happy 90-ish years with the world revolving around us and then fizzle out of existence, right? No. On a happier note, though, what about Isaac? Isaac's right in the, he's right in the middle of these two men. He's, you know, Abraham's son. He's Jacob's father. And his name isn't changed at all. Isaac means laughter, or his name in Hebrew, Yitzhak, means laughter. Why didn't God change his name? And I will give a quarter to the first person who gets it right. Any ideas? Why didn't God change Isaac's name? I guarantee you all of you guys are going to go, boom. All right, I'll tell you. Isaac was the only person that was named by God. Right? Yeah, there's no reason to change his name because God already chose it before he was born. If you don't remember, go back to Genesis chapter 17. He tells Abraham exactly what he's to name his kid. So, now, why was he named Isaac? 
which means laughter. Well, it's, it's because when he, when he told you know, Abram and Sarah on two separate occasions that they were going to have a son, they both laughed. But why did they laugh? Well, because, yeah, exactly. They were close to 100 years old at the time. But why is that funny? And I don't, I don't want to, you know, I'm going to sound like Robocop or something here, but if we analyze the reason that laughter occurs, we can see the pattern that anytime two things that are incongruous with each other suddenly come together, like childbirth and old age, we do this weird thing called laughing. I'm not sure why we do it, but it's just human nature. You know, one example of two incongruous things would be, uh, say, Mr. Gabe winning at ping pong, right? <laughs> See, you all laugh, and, you know, we know that's um, two very impossible things, so that's why we laugh. It's, it's very, uh, very strange, right? right? <laughs> all right, but, but check this out, okay? So I'm about to give you guys the meaning of life, all right? If you, if you ever wondered, here it is. Instead of striving for this, you know, this plastic happiness of material things and status, the true goal of our life is to live with God. Because the ultimate laughter, the ultimate joy, is when the two most incongruous things come together. The creator and ruler of the universe and us, a weak and insignificant group of complainers made out of dust, right? That is the ultimate happiness. And it's something that we can never experience in this lifetime here on earth. So how do we get there, right? Well, this that I have in my hand, it costs about, costs about $25. Um, I think you can pirate it online. But it's an instruction manual on how to do that, how to get there, right? And you know, there are several important questions that everyone has to ask themselves in their lifetime. And one that is probably the most important is this. What happens to us after we die? Well, I'll tell you, that's completely up to God and up to you. Okay? No one's guaranteed to live another day or even another 10 seconds. So why take the gamble? If you know what happens to you after you die, you should probably be pretty cautious with how you live. And if you don't know what happens to you after you die, you should probably study up. I guess this is for Patrick to quote Morgan Freeman, it's time to, to get busy living or get busy dying. There we go. Had to slip that in there. So anyway, I'm going to continue reading through this chapter so we can move things along, right? I know I'm, I'm going slow, uh, but let's start off on verse 13. Chapter 35, 13. Then God went up from him at the place where he had spoken with him. Jacob set up a memorial stone in the place where he had spoken with him, a stone pillar. And he poured a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. Jacob named the place where God spoke with him Bethel. Then they traveled from Bethel, and while they were still a distance from entering Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth, but her labor was difficult. While she was struggling to give birth, the midwife said to her, Don't be afraid, for this is also a son for you. Now as her soul was departing, for she died, she named him Ben-Oni, but his father named him Ben-Yamin, or Benjamin. 
Then Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Jacob set up a memorial stone over her grave. It is a memorial stone over Rachel's grave to this day. Okay, so first of all, that name Ben-Oni, that she names him as she's dying, means son of my sorrow. And the name that Jacob renamed him to, Benjamin, or Benjamin, is son of the right hand. So there's a principle here that we can take from, right? Notice how Rachel names her son Ben-Oni, son of my sorrow, and she gives him this name because she's going through a horrible birthing process and she's in pain. But then Jacob steps in and he renames him Benjamin, son of the right hand. So here's the principle. Never name something out of pain. You know, we're all descendants of Adam and one of Adam's first jobs was naming things, right? And all of his descendants have been naming things ever since. You know, we'll name something and say, that's good or that's bad or that's pretty, that's ugly, or this is horrible, or this is wonderful, right? And so many times we get it wrong because we name things out of our pain. And if you think back to a, a painful time in your life, um, you know, something that, that really just caused you a lot of pain, whether it be physical or, or mental. And um, have you ever come across somebody that's, you know, they've just got out of a, a horrible marriage and they say to you, don't ever get married. It's not worth it. I, I know I've gotten that quite a few times. Um, but I can say this from first-hand experience. It is worth it. All right? Or maybe a different scenario. When I was a kid, I threw up pizza. So now I don't eat pizza anymore. But, you know, is marriage or pizza bad? Of course not. And... If you say yes to either one of those, then this is aimed right at you, okay? So listen up. But if you have been hurt by something, don't dub that entire thing as bad, okay? I know that contradicts human nature, as we're designed to steer clear of things, things that bring us pain, you know, like a, a rattlesnake uh, jumping out and biting somebody and they die. Rattlesnake, bad. But, just, you know, just because, like, for another example, say you, you hit your ankle with a scooter... You know, just because you do that once doesn't mean you have to become an anti-scooter monk, okay? And if you have experienced that pain, don't put that pain on other people. You know, don't steer anyone away from something that could be wonderful just because you failed at it, okay? That's evil. So, I mean, there have been times in my own life where I was going through the ringer, and at the time I was thinking, you know, man, the devil is just out to get me, right? But years later I look back and I think, hang on a second, that wasn't Satan beating me down. That was God. And now, because I survived that experience, I'm stronger. At the time, I named it out of my pain. But one of my favorite things of all time to quote is this line from John F. Kennedy, who says this, Do not pray for easier lives. Pray to be stronger men. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your tasks. Right? We want to be chained, changed from a Jacob to an Israel. So uh, we're going to go ahead and keep moving along. Uh, verses, uh, ver starting off at verse uh, 21. 35, 21. Then Israel journeyed on and set up his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel was living in that land, 
Reuben went and slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah, and Israel heard about it. Okay? So after you read these couple verses here, you might think, like, hang on a second. Why doesn't, why doesn't Jacob punish Reuben for doing this? Because if you read on, he doesn't say anything about it. He just hears about it, and that's it. So does he get away with this? You know, does, does Jacob do the same thing with Reuben and Bilhah that he did with Dina and Shechem and just, you know, let it be? But then we come to the last bit of Jacob's life, and we skip ahead to Genesis chapter 49, and Jacob is on his deathbed, and he prophesies over each one of his 12 sons. And remember what, um, what Simeon and Levi did with, uh, with Shechem and what Reuben did right here? Well, let's see what he prophesies over them years later. And I'm, I'm sorry to the future person who has to teach over this, but I'm um, stealing your thunder a little bit. But chapter 49 says, Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves so that I may tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. Gather together and listen, sons of Jacob. Yes, listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might in the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. But you are uncontrollable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. So if you thought, you know, if you thought Reuben got away with his actions in chapter 35, you know, don't worry, it's covered later, okay? You see, Reuben thought he was being sneaky back then and may have thought he was off the hook, but it came back to him later in life, years later, as unrepentant sin always will. And, you know, even though Reuben is the firstborn biologically, he forfeited the role by doing this one tiny thing in his mind. And now he has to pay the consequences for it. Of course, you know, when the, when the firstborn loses their firstborn status, it passes to the next in line. But if you remember from last week's chapter, the next two runners-up, or runner-ups, runners-up, you know, those guys, they threw away their role as firstborn because of their revenge plot. Here's what chapter 49 says about this. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. May my soul not enter into their council. May my glory not be united with their assembly. For in their, in their anger they killed men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will scatter them in Jacob and disperse them among Israel. And just like that, the firstborn status of Israel you know, traveled all the way down the ranks and went to the fourth son, Judah, who... You know, while not perfect, he earned the right to be the leader of Israel. And as you know, through Judah's descendants would come the future kings of Israel, and even Yeshua himself came from the line of Judah. So just think, if Reuben maybe had better judgment or self-control, Yeshua may have been a Reubenite. That's a crazy thought, huh? The little decisions you make in your life can affect something like that for years to come. That's the... I guess it's like the butterfly effect or something. But now, okay. At this point, um, after we get through all of that, I would like to um, actually not go over chapter twenty or thirty-six. I know I'm, I'm sorry. I uh, I failed at keeping up with two chapters. But it's it's an entire chapter surrounded by Esau's descendants. Okay. Now I didn't, whole, I didn't have a whole lot to say about this chapter. Um, 
But because we don't have a lot of time, and um, there's something really important in chapter 35, I want to talk about the beginning of that chapter again. So uh, remember how I, I said we were going to come back to those first four verses? Okay, so let's go ahead and take a look there and reread these couple verses. Genesis 35, 1. Then God said to Jacob, Get up, get up to Bethel and stay there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to everyone who was with him, Get rid of the foreign gods that are among you. Cleanse yourselves and change your clothes. Now let's get, let's get up and go up to Bethel so that I can make an altar there to, to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way that I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods in their hand and the rings in their ears and Jacob hid them under the oak tree near Shechem. Okay, so in verse two, we see Jacob tell everyone to get rid of the foreign gods that are among his family. Cleanse themselves and then change their clothes. The Hebrew word for foreign here is nechar. And I'm going to spell this out. It's nun, kaf, resh, nechar, okay? So this word nechar, it has two meanings that are the exact opposite of one another. It means to be a stranger, like we see in this verse talking about the foreign gods, the stranger gods. But it also means to recognize. So we see this word uh, later in Psalm 137, verse 4. How can we sing a song of Adonai in a foreign, in a Nechar land? But we also see the same word in Proverbs 20:11. Even a child is known, Nechar, by his actions, whether his conduct is pure and upright. So the only thing separating the differences between this word's two definitions is a little accent letter, changing it from nekar to nachar, okay? So, nekar, uh, oops, nekar, like that. Nachar looks like that. Nachar, nekar, same exact letters, different vowels, okay? So, what does this word mean exactly? says foreign and it also says to be known well actually it involves both of those two things you take you first take something right and you examine it to see what it comes from and then you make the correct decision based on that you recognize it and you either distinguish it as something from god or you reject it because you realize that it's from a foreign source so here's a quick picture of what this is like you know have you ever been um, making a sandwich um, or a snack and reached in the refrigerator or at the back of a cabinet and you found the ingredient you were looking for only to realize that it's, it's, been, it's been sitting there for a little bit longer than you thought, you know? Yeah, well, to see if it's still you know, fit to eat or not, you have to perform the universal official health inspection that every human is born knowing, right? You twist open the jug of milk or you break the seal of the Ziploc bag and then what? You smell it. You guys all know that because we're all born knowing that, I guess. And depending on the way your human instincts kick in, right? If you go, mm, or if you go, oh, you know, you decide what to do with it. 
Do you throw it away or do you eat it? If you choose to throw it away, you sometimes have to change your entire lunch plans or substitute it with something else. But if you choose to eat it, the next step in the process is usually taking a small bite. And, you know, if your cheese doesn't taste like feet, you're probably fine. So that's probably the reason, you know, God gave us a sense of smell, giving us the first line of defense against that kind of stuff without it actually, like, entering into our our system big time. So back to Genesis, then. We see here that Jacob goes through the exact same process. In verse 2, he tells his family to look at all the things they've picked up along the way and ask themselves, is this something that is in line with our creator's will? Or is it something that's outside of that, something that's foreign? So while we're looking through this, I'm going to give you guys a four-step process on how to get rid of idols in your life, okay? And you might think, you know, but I've already done that when I became Christian or Messianic. And yes, that's true, okay? But I dare say that we acquire just as many idols after we come into this faith than we had before. Though, of course, they're not quite, you know, the same as they were before. But let me give you an example, okay? Gossip. Crazy concept. An idol doesn't have to be a physical object. Right? Like when someone says, oh, you know, I have an idol in my life. It doesn't mean they come home from the grocery store and they, they grab the little, um, the little Indiana Jones gold statue and stare at it for hours. That's not what, that's not what it means necessarily. Um, of course, idols can be physical, like your cell phone. But Mr. Gabe did a teaching on that a couple weeks back, so I'm not going to talk about cell phones a whole lot right now. That can be an idol, though, and it is for a lot of people. But even more dangerous than physical idols are these intangible idols in our lives, like gossip, because they're way more difficult to spot, right? There's nothing to look at. You can't see it physically. So this brings us to step number one in the four-step process of how to get rid of an idol. First, you have to recognize that you have an idol, okay? And remember that, that Hebrew word, that from earlier, nechar, you have to recognize nechar, an issue, and then decide if it's from God or if it's nechar, foreign. And here are three ways to help you decide if something is an idol or not. One, does it glorify yourself instead of God? Okay? When you gossip about someone or even share sensitive information about someone to someone else, Are you doing it for God, or are you doing it for that little buzz you get in your head when you know something that someone else doesn't? Okay? That's number one. Number two, does it consume your thoughts? Whenever you hear a new piece of information, are you immediately thinking, you know, oh, I need to tell my buddy Charlie about that? Well, here's a good rule of thumb, and I'm I'm not trying to pick on you, Charlie. Sorry, it's the first name that came to my mind. But um, if you're thinking about something so much to the point where you're having dreams about it, then you definitely need to take a step back and analyze that thing, okay? And that's not the only way to go about it, but if you're at that point, you gotta take a step back, take a look at what that is. So, number three, do you use it to gain what can only be gained from God, okay? So stop and think to yourself, what am I gaining by talking trash about this person? Does my buddy, Charlie, think that I'm smarter or wiser? Or maybe I want, to, you know, I want him to think that, that we have a close relationship um, because I share all this stuff with him so that he'll like me more. But um, you know, guess what? People are they're unreliable. Sorry, it's, just, it's a sad truth. 
Um, if you develop a relationship with someone, they are guaranteed to hurt you at one time or another. And they, they may not mean to, but it's just our nature. And this, the reason because of that is because we're not perfect. Only God is perfect. So stop, you know, stop trying to gain this fake approval from humans. And if you're, if you're friends with someone that likes gossiping and you call them out and tell them that you don't think they should gossip, they'll probably be super embarrassed at that moment and they either won't bring it up in the future or they'll, they'll change their mind maybe turn it a separate path or they might just ditch you. And that's perfectly fine though because you don't really want to be around those kind of people. But um, it's, it's awkward to do. But doing that kind of thing, separating yourself from those kind of things is, it'll definitely save you from a lot of hurt and pain down the road. But, okay, so now that we've gone over how to recognize an idol, we go to step two, which as we read, as we, uh, read in verse two of chapter 35, is to cleanse yourselves, okay? Jacob tells them to um, gather all the foreign gods and then to cleanse themselves. And then step three, is to change your clothes. Okay? That sounds odd, but it summarizes two things that we need to do. One is to cleanse yourself, you know, wash yourself completely. You know, like your body is the internal, it's the hidden stuff. And the clothing, when he says change your clothes, that's the external, okay? Which is what people see. And what Jacob is saying can be broken down into this. I want you to look inside your hearts, look inside who you are, and cleanse anything in your attitudes, anything in how you compromise your principles, and cleanse those things away. Get rid of them. Don't do that stuff. Don't look at that. And don't think about those things anymore. And then present yourself to the world in a pure way. So let them see you wearing clean clothes. In other words... Um, when they see you, they won't see you know, old grease stains and holes. They won't see impurities in the way you walk, the way you talk, the way you act, you see? Now, of course, it's super easy to say, oh, yeah, get rid of the idols. But it's extremely difficult to actually go about doing that. And I would love, I would love to tell you how to do that, how to get rid of an idol exactly in a, you know, in a step-by-step process. But I think I'd need about um, maybe four to six more hours of teaching and a couple gallons of coffee to do that. So unfortunately, that's not for today. But that brings us up to the fourth and final step, which is this. In verse three, Jacob says, now let's get up and go up to Bethel, to the house of God. And Bethel is the place where God started this journey, right? And now Jacob realizes that he must return to it. So after you do all these things, return to your first love, God, and follow his ways. And, you know, he's willing to forgive you so long as you're willing to put in the actual work of repentance. And I'm not just saying, you know, like, say, I'm sorry to God every Tuesday afternoon and you're covered. You know, don't be afraid to go back to the beginning. You know, like when you're, um, when you're completing a maze in the, in the newspaper, are newspapers still a thing? I don't know. But when you're doing a maze on a piece of paper, and you know, sometimes you run into a dead end, and you have to go back to the beginning and then try again. But that's okay. God doesn't want you running into that dead end and then stagnating there for the rest of your life, right? He'd rather have you put in the work 
to start over and see your way to the end, no matter how long it takes, okay? You know, it's like, um, like shooting a bow and arrow. You have to first pull back that way before you can hit the target over this way, okay? I have to go further back that way before I can go that way. And the further I pull it back that way, the further the arrow's going to go that way, okay? But you're not going backwards. You're not losing progress. It's just a necessary step that's crucial in growing your faith. Go back to your beginnings, then launch again. Okay? Got it? Good. I'll take that as a yes. But that's the really cool thing about you know, being in a community like we have here. You, know, you might think that you're going through these terrible struggles you ha- that you have on your own, but when you succeed, it strengthens and encourages everyone else in the community. We can all feel it. And when you fail or when you hurt, everyone else can feel that too. So that might be a little you know, motivator or demotivator, depending on how you see it. Um, and I can't explain why it works like that, but I know it's true. You know, I, whenever someone announces they have great news, it brings me you know, great happiness. And when I hear terrible news about somebody else, it just puts me down in the dumps. Um, but you know, I, I know that's true. And we're, we're all in this together, right? Like it or not. So do good because all of us are depending on you. And you are depending on all of us. So just try to do it right, okay? Put in the effort, because we only get one shot at life. So all of that said, um, here's what I'll leave you with. I personally challenge you this next week. Uh Uh-oh, you know, whenever Mr. Gabe says this, everyone's shifting in their seats. But I personally challenge you to search your own lives and find something that may not be pleasing to God, okay? If you're uncomfortable with me saying that, then good. You probably will have a very easy time doing it. So here's a few things that can get your mind rolling, okay? Look at what you watch, okay? That's very important. Look at the tasks you prioritize throughout the day. Look at the kind of food you eat. And I don't just mean kosher, I mean junk food, okay? You can look at the way you talk to people, the way you think about certain people, whether good or bad, the way you talk, uh, who you talk to, and yes, crazy news, it's still gossip if you're gossiping to your family members, okay? You gotta remember that. But those are just a couple things that you can reflect on throughout this next week. Take a look at everything. And if you do find something, go through this process to see if you need to reduce or eliminate your usage of that thing. And if you don't find anything bad, then uh, please come to me next week and teach me how to be perfect like yourself. I would greatly appreciate that. Thank you. But um, no, I, anyways, I'd, uh, I thank you guys for your time and I'd like to go ahead and pray together before we close up. So, Father, we come to you today in prayer asking that you would turn each of us from a Jacob to an Israel. Help us to realize the things in our lives that are not from you and give us the strength to leave those things behind. Give us the strength to make it through the various struggles in our lives and give us the humility and wisdom we need when we're doing well, Lord. I pray that you would help us to turn to you for support and that we would study the role model you set for us, which is your son, Yeshua. We thank you for all your wonderful blessings and for the difficult times as they serve to make us stronger. We thank you for all of this in Yeshua's name. Amen.